Welcome to Sense and Sensibility, the Inflation Guy podcast. I am Michael Ashton. I am the Inflation Guy, and I am your host today. And it is the um, 14th of March, 2023, and we're going to talk about today's CPI report. But, But before I do, let me remind you that this episode of Sense and Sensibility is sponsored by Simplify ETFs. Simplify is a manager of alternative ETFs solving today's most pressing portfolio challenges. This includes income solutions like SVAL, yield curve plays like TUA, and 60-40 diversifiers such as CTA. If you are an individual investor or RIA, you will likely find that something they have done addresses a particular problem you have that you didn't know was solvable. Check out their website at simplify.us. That's simplify.us. And you can find their entire lineup of ETFs at simplify.us slash ETFs. And so let's talk about the inflation numbers today. Uh, um, well, um, let's see. What's interesting, so last Thursday, Friday, as we started to have all this, uh, the news about the problems in at, at several banks, and we'll, we'll keep it right now at several banks, um, it sort of started to look like today's CPI report would be a lot less significant than it uh, than it had been. Uh, in fact, for a while, it looked like that might be something worth ignoring because, you know, if, obviously, if there's a major banking calamity, then no one's going to really care about one month's CPI print. Uh, what's interesting is, I guess, that it, it doesn't appear to be a major banking calamity, and I'll talk more about that in a little bit, but, um, but it actually turns out that this CPI report is probably almost as important as it would otherwise be, and and it the whatever decision that the Fed makes at their next meeting, um, which occurs shortly, um, is going to is is going to have to be viewed in the context of the inflation data that we just got. And in fact, you know the uh, the Fed whisper came out yesterday, uh, Nick uh, Timurios. Uh, at the Wall Street Journal, and and he did not sort of signal any particular flavor of Fed action. Um, really rolling it back a little bit, you know, we had sort of thought after after the last meeting there was a 25 basis point hike, and the thought was maybe you get another 25 basis point hike and then stop, but we got some bad inflation data. Chairman Powell came out and said, "Oh well." you know, this means that we really have to consider 50 basis points, scared a lot of people. Uh, and, and so that was sort of the context. And then we had all the banking news, um, with a couple of banks going into receivership. And, and so suddenly the, the discussion is, um, uh, well, is the Fed going to, you know, they're not going to do 50 basis points. Are they going to do 25 basis points, zero? Or are they going to ease 25 basis points? What's going to happen? And then over the weekend, the FDIC and Fed and uh, uh, Treasury put in a couple of new programs to support banks. And and anyway, so that's sort of the whole context here. But it's very clear going into the number that what we what the Fed wanted, and I guess it's what they always want, but they really wanted it this time, was they wanted a nice tame inflation number, one that made it look like inflation is really coming down. And so 
they could say, well, we don't, you know, we're going to take a pass this, you know, this uh, meeting and, and maybe we're done. We don't know, but, but we're reasonably close to being done with this because inflation is finally coming down. And so now we can focus on this banking stuff. Well, that's not what they got. Um, the fact that the, that the Fed whisperer, I guess I should finish up that little uh, line of thought. The fact that the Fed whisperer did not come out and, and, and signal anything is partly what told you that, that this inflation number mattered. And because otherwise the Fed would have known what they were going to do. If, the Fed, if this didn't matter, the Fed whisperer would have told us and we wouldn't have cared about CPI. The fact that he didn't say anything says the Fed wanted to see the figure. As I said, it would have been really nice to have a nice soft figure, but now you have one that was higher than expected. So um, uh, let me give you some specifics on that. So the uh, the headline month-on-month CPI was uh, 0.37%, and that was lower than expected. But obviously we always, you know, we we care more about uh, core, and core was 0.452%. Rounding, rounding up to to 0.5 percent, and going in, the market was was really right on 0.4 percent, and and the Kalshi market, which I talked about in the in um, in the prior episode, uh, episode 56 of this podcast, you know, Kalshi was right on 0.4 as well. So it was it was higher than that. We got you know rounded up to 0.5 year on year. Core inflation went from 5.6 to 5.5, but but kind of on the bad side of that rather than on the good side of that, rounding down to, to 5.5 rather, rather than rounding up. Um, well, that's not a bad miss, right? So it's a miss, but it's not really a bad miss. Now, that's still the highest core number we've had since September. Um, and in fact, you know, the last three numbers for December, January, and February have now all been you know, successfully higher all in the 0.4% category, which means core is running around 0.5% over the last, at a 5% rate over the last quarter. Okay, but, you know, not not terrible, right? Well, the problem is that the one-offs, I mean, you always sort of, you look at the initial figure and then you say, okay, well, were there any one-offs that sort of moved things? And that's why I focus on median so much. But the one-offs this month were were dragging CPI down. Um, housing, uh, lodging away from home, you know, hotels and stuff, added. Okay, so they were a surprise that added about five basis points. But used cars, which the, the all the the surveys have had rising over the last uh, two months in the Mannheim report and the one month in the uh, Black Book report. And I thought, as a result of that, would add about five basis points to core inflation. Um, in fact, we're, we're down pretty, you know, two, two and three quarter percent or so, which means that they were instead a drag of about nine basis points. So that was a 14-bit swing. If you'd gotten core, if you'd gotten used cars where I thought they were going to be, then we would have been about a 0.6 or so on core inflation. And that would have been a really scary thing. <laughs> so the only reason that it was as good as 0.45 was that we had the one-offs going in that direction and sort of, you know, I guess reinforcing that. Now, it's just my my calculation at this point. I don't have the the actual median inflation number, but I, I calculated month-on-month median CPI at 0.634%. 
And at 0.634%, you're looking at a 7.5% run rate on median CPI. And and year-on-year median CPI, as a result of that, went to a new high. So there's really no way which you can look at any of that data and say, okay, inflation is clearly going down. In fact, looking at median, it hasn't peaked yet. Now, I'm the first to say that's a surprise. I thought we would, when we had an earlier peak in median, I kind of thought that was the peak. But the last two months have set new highs, so it clearly hasn't happened yet. Well, that's kind of a problem. Um, if you look at the breakdown, um, you know, again, even on core, you know, core goods decelerated to 1% year-on-year. Core services accelerated, as it has continued to do, to seven and a quarter year on year. And again, and I mentioned this last month, core goods is the drag on core inflation right now. It's what's pulling it down. Unfortunately, we've already squeezed that that orange as much as we can. We've gotten all the juice out of it that we can as core goods inflation has fallen from 13 or 14% down to one. Um, the problem is we need core services to decelerate and that just isn't happening. Part of the reason that's hap- that isn't happening yet is that shelter inflation continues to accelerate. Uh, primary rents were up eight and three quarter percent year on year, and, and owners' equivalent rent eight percent year on year, um, which represent new highs there. And let me just take an aside here uh, to comment on that. I, I, I think that you know the way inflation people look at rents typically, is they, they, they model rents as the lagged change in home prices because those two things are a substitute and they should move together. If home prices are, are plunging, then eventually rents ought to go down as well. And, and if, if home prices are going up dramatically, then so should rents. And that's worked for a very long period of time in a period of low overall inflation. That substitute factor um, was enough with the appropriate lag to, to come up with a pretty good a forecast of core. And it, and it certainly is true that if home prices are are dramatically appreciating or dramatically selling off, you're eventually going to get that same reaction out of rents. But let's take a step back here from, from the way we typically model these things. So, you know, home prices have flattened out and gone down a little bit, in fact, not a lot, but they've they've gone down slightly and, and therefore in real terms they've gone down a you know a fair amount. Um and, and that's probably just about done, by the way. But um, but that would sort of, I think that's one of the reasons everybody expects rents to decelerate. But let's, let's take out the substitution effect uh, and let's just look at rental property itself. So what would make you think, in, in, in the current context, what would make you think we're going to see a deceleration in rents? We have strong wage growth, which hasn't really come down at all. Um, average hourly earnings has, but that's a horrible way to look at it. If you look at most measures, the good measures of wages, they really haven't come down very much at all. And you have Social Security going up 8.5% for this year. So you have lots and lots of wage and, and income growth happening. So on the demand side, people are, are able to pay higher rents. They obviously don't want to, but they're able to. And so put yourself in the in the in the position of a landlord there's a real shelter there's a real shortage of shelter okay i've got a, a unit and uh 
and I have to decide whether I'm going to hike up hike rents. Well, if, you know, gee, somebody my uh, my my tenant might leave. I'm not really worried about that. There's a shortage of shelter, so I'm going to get somebody else in there, and they're likely going to have enough money to rent for me because wages are are doing fine. Moreover, my costs are going up. You know, the cost of financing my building, the cost of heating my building, the cost of, of maintaining my building, all of my costs are going up too. And so why would I try to hold rents constant? There's just no reason for that to happen. Um, now, there's there's obviously a really wide dispersion right now. Rents are skyrocketing 20% a year in, in Florida and they're, you know, steady to going down in parts of California. But taken as a whole, uh, it's not clear to me why we would see a dramatic slowdown in, in rents. Um, my model says that they should be slowing down too. It doesn't say they, I don't think they're going to slow down dramatically, but my model has them slowing down. And, um, but if we step back from the model and think about what should happen in rents, it's not at all clear to me that, that they should be going from 8% down to 1% maybe 8% down to 5 at some point. But, um, but until we get lots more roofs out there, the cost of a roof is going to continue to be reasonably well bid. So, so again, so we had this number that was higher than expected. We had the sticky parts of the number uh, uh, continuing to accelerate. We had median inflation at new highs. We had all the one-offs, not all the one-offs, but most of the one-offs were drags. You know, we also had um, the, the the health insurance issue kind of re, reasserted itself this this month, and so medical care was a drag on the numbers. So, so if you you know if you look at the 0.45 and there were lots of one offs adding, you'd say, okay, fine, that's good. But one 0.45, an upside surprise with everything dragging is is just not good numbers. So. So the Fed's in a bit of a bind. This is not the number they wanted to see. Um, at this, as I record this, ten-year inflation expectations, ten-year break-evens are up ten basis points. So the inflation market kind of gets this. Um, the Fed wanted to see something different. So now, what is that? What's the context now for the Fed's decision? So you could argue. I, I'm going to argue each of the, each of the positions for the Fed. So. Here's the argument for 50 basis, a 50 basis point hike, which I think has almost no chance of happening. But the argument for it is this. We've put some programs in place to support banks. So we're not really worried about banks. Most of the banking problems were, were one-off to a small group of banks. Um, and so we're not worried about those. Inflation is still bad, so we're going to hike, go back up to 50 basis points, just like Powell said. That's the argument for 50. I don't think that's very likely. I think it sends the, the wrong message. Because one thing to keep in mind is whatever the Fed does at this meeting has no effect on inflation over the next three months or six months. Even in the Fed's models, even if you believe that that higher rates dampen inflation, and the evidence for that is not good, but if, if you believe that, and it is, a, it is an article of faith at the Federal Reserve, their models don't say it's gonna, it happens anytime soon. So there's really no reason to be all that aggressive at this meeting. If you need to be aggressive, you can be just you can be aggressive at next meeting when the banking problem has calmed down. Um, so I don't really see 50 basis points happening. So then 
and I don't, and I think with this number, there's no chance that you get an ease. So we're down to a choice between doing nothing, zero, or repeating the 25 basis points from last time. So when I look at that, I go, well, let's see. If the Fed does zero, they're, they're signaling to some people that they're done. It may or may not mean that. We're certainly, we're probably going to get a longer statement after the meeting than we normally do. Um, but, but zero would, would signal, you know, we had 50, then 25, then zero. It would look like the Fed is in the process of a pivot. Um, and I don't think that's really a message that they want to send, especially when inflation is reaching a new high. Um, it also sort of, you know, hints at a Fed put. And the Fed has done a decent job at, at ignoring, you know, the modest bear market we've, we had in stocks um, and not overreacting to it. I don't, th- I think that the concept of a Fed, of a Fed put still exists, but they are dampening it a little bit. And I, I don't think they want to reverse that. So, so in all this context, in my mind, 25 basis, a 25 basis point hike is sort of still the best, the most likely option here, um, given that we had a higher than expected inflation number and that the banking problem does not appear to be too widespread. A quick word then on the banking problem. So, you know, part of, there were, there were sort of two, well, there are many parts to, to the, the problem for Silicon Valley Bank. Um, one of the problem, well, and, and a lot of it had to do with the, with the type of depositors they had and the fact that they were highly correlated depositors, um, but also a reason for sort of the sudden insolvency was that um, the bank had a very large amount of uh, uh, securities in the hold to maturity book. So banks can choose whether to categorize securities held in their portfolio as available for sale, which means they get marked to market, um, or held to maturity, which means they don't get marked to market. And and the problem is that if you have securities in uh, held to maturity and then you have to sell them, then you get a then you have to realize all those unrealized losses. And that's what happened. All of a sudden, they had to realize a bunch of losses. They're insolvent. They go under. Um, now, it's not at all clear why the FDIC or the Federal Reserve, who are responsible for examining those banks, uh, that bank, didn't realize that they had these this massive duration mismatch and a massive problem. But we'll leave the uh, the, the question about bank examination to for another day. Uh, the point is that that they did, and now people are concerned that there's this much wider spread problem because there are many other banks with unrealized securities losses. However, I don't think that having banks with unrealized, unrealized securities losses when you have treasury rates that going uh, up as much as they have is surprising, um, and it's not necessarily bad. Why is it not necessarily bad? Well, you know you've got securities losses, but you don't know what the hedge has done. The way most banks manage this portfolio is they will have the securities, long-dated securities, um, but they will they'll hedge that via a swap uh, so that they have, you know, it, it effectively gives them overnight duration or short-term duration, three-month duration. And so if you don't know what the, what the hedge is doing, you don't know how the bank was hedged, you can't just look at the unrealized securities losses and say, oh, this is a massive problem. 
in may, most cases, a well-run bank is going to buy long if they have, if they're buying longer-term treasury securities, then they're they're swapping it back to short-term, and so those banks aren't going to have a problem. Uh, but so I don't I don't think this is as as big a problem, and certainly now that the Fed and everybody is sort of guaranteeing everything and and spraying money at them, I, I really don't see that this is a problem. Could be famous last words. Um, Another component of the problem, though, is worth remarking on as well, and that is that, you know, there's a lot of talk about how, um, you know, deposits actually, bank deposits have declined recently for the first time, like, ever. You know, banks, bank deposits always go up over time because the amount of money in the system goes up over time, the size of the economy goes up over time, and, and the rate of change of bank deposits just goes up you know, greater or lesser amounts over time. Um, but they've recently gone down. Now, that shouldn't be a surprise because one consequence of higher interest rates is that your, in, your desire in holding a zero interest rate bank deposit or a very low yielding bank deposit goes down. Um, and so, and, and we've been talking about that on this podcast now for more than a year. That is what velocity, an increase in velocity means. That's why an increase in interest rates increases velocity because it decreases the demand for cash balances. Okay. When interest rates go up, you don't want to leave your money sitting there earning zero. So what do you do? You take it out of the bank, you buy, you know, uh, you buy three month T-bills, you buy 10 year treasuries, you buy stocks, you buy other things that give you a return. When inflation was super low and interest rates were at, you know, 1% at the five-year point, then holding cash at zero wasn't a really big cost. Right now, it's a really big cost. And so that's the reason that deposits leave. Completely and utterly predictable. That's what increase in velocity means. And that's why the increase in velocity is highly correlated to interest rates. So that part is not at all surprising. But again, you know, we're not going to see global bank deposits you know, drop 30%. Um, and so, you know, the issue right now is that people who are concerned about, about you know, their bank, uh, about being at a regional bank might pull their deposits and move them to J.P. Morgan or some systemically important bank. It, it seems less important to me, less likely to me now because of all the backstop programs that have been put into place, but it, it, but it's possible. Um, certainly, I would think that risk control officers uh, should start paying a lot more attention to the $250,000 FDIC insurance limit for deposits um, than maybe they have if, there's any, if there was any risk that a bank deposit would not be fully insured. Um, I should say that Powell's own history from the early 90s has been, um, in, in earlier banker, banking crises, to to desire to fully insure all bank deposits, even the ones above the insurance limit. And so I would be very surprised if depositors um, lose really anything. Um, I think that you're going to see bank equity right, uh, wiped out for the, for the insolvent banks. You're going to see management teams removed. Um, you're going to see bondholders lose most of their money, but depositors are going to be whole. That's just my my view of what's likely to happen. 
Um, and so going back to the Fed, which is going back to inflation, I think the Fed is going, you know, they, they've addressed this banking issue, which doesn't look like it's going to be a systemic issue. Um, and, and by the way, it's not just the Fed saying it's not going to be a systemic issue. It's me saying that. Whereas in the last, in 2008, it was very obviously going to be a systemic issue and the Fed just didn't figure it out in time. Um, this looks like this is not the same as 2008. It's not going to be the same kind of crisis. Could be famous last words, but I don't think so. And so the Fed probably will want to do something which, which looks like maintaining a steady hand on the tiller. So I expect 25 basis points. But the bigger problem, going back one more step to what we started with, which was inflation, the longer-term issue here is that inflation has yet to peak. Median inflation hit a new high, and, and all the sticky things still look bad. Inflation will eventually peak, um, but it hasn't yet. And so right now the inflation swap market has um, is pricing year-on-year inflation as of, uh, as of December 23. Okay, so what, what will inflation be for this year? It's pricing it at 3.15%. Unless you get oil to collapse, I, I don't see how you get to 3.15%. Core is not going to be as low as 3.15% by December. So uh, I don't, don't really know how you get there. But, um, but that's, that's sort of what the market is, is looking at. And I think that that means that we do have additional downside in the bond market. We have additional downside in the stock market. As that part of the realization um, continues to percolate through, that inflation is not solved yet, continues to be a problem, and, um, and that, frankly, whatever the Fed is doing so far hasn't done anything, um, that, that should bother you as an investor. Uh, so, um, so, that's, uh, so that's all I have to say about, about this report, which I thought on, on Friday was not going to be a very important report. But it um, turned out to be an important report, and I think um, uh, in 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 some in some ways, the banking news made it a more important report. So that's all for today's podcast. Uh, you can contact me at inflationguy at enduringinvestments.com. You should subscribe to the blog at inflationguy.blog. And by the way, I do a lot of this in real time on on the CPI report day. Uh, you can subscribe by going to inflationguy.blog slash shop. And you can subscribe to my private Twitter feed and get this stuff in, in real time. But you can get the uh, my free Twitter at, in, at inflation underscore guy. Visit Enduring Investments if you have an inflation challenge that you need help with. And most importantly, defend your money. And if inflation is coming for you, remember, you know a guy.